This is Paul Moon, director of the documentary Samuel Barber, Absolute Beauty, and you're listening to the fifth episode of what has become an occasional podcast series in the film's afterlife. I've called it Capricorn Conversations to focus on some more American composers and musicians connected with that era of American music who would have fit right into conversations at that house named Capricorn where Barber and Minotti lived, famous as a crossroads of 20th century composers. I'm sitting here with composer David Del Tredici in the West Village of Manhattan, and we're also joined by Mark Peloquin, who you can hear playing the last note of Despite and Still in my documentary before the credits roll. But much more importantly, Mark is identified with David's piano works after performing and recording them over many years. Thank you both for having this conversation today. So I'm really going to enjoy hearing you tell stories today about Samuel Barber and other composers you've known. But this program is really about you. And I'd love to start there from the top. So um, I heard you say something uh, in an interview that sounded a lot like Barber. You said uh, you realized at some point that playing piano was a way of getting out of playing baseball. <laughs> uh, Barber called it his worrying secret in a letter to his mom that he wanted to be a composer instead of playing football. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me a little bit about that uh, original epiphany. Well, first I have to say, nice to be here, Paul. Uh, but my, you have to pronounce my last, last name right, I think. Okay. Del Tredici. Thank you for correcting it, yeah. Sorry. For the rest of history, yeah. <laughs> so here we are talking about uh, the, the original epiphanies. Uh, and, you know, you started on the piano, didn't you? Yes. Late, late actually, was about 10 or 11. Yeah. When my interest in flower arranging, which was my first pa passion, wore out, uh -huh. I, I moved from uh, to music. But I, I didn't was interested in music. But I was interested in not playing baseball. <laughs> Very interested. <laughs> and someone said, "There's a nun who teaches during, during recess, and, and if, if you don't take lessons, you don't have to play baseball." <laughs> so I just threw and went. And it was love at first sight. Yeah. And I, was, I got good so fast that the nun didn't know what to do with me. She had to move me on. So I was, was given to someone named Bernhard Abramovich, a wonderful pianist, who came up from Germany in the World War. <coughs> and uh, so I started commuting from California, from California, from my home in San Salo to Berkeley, California. And that was a long trip in those days for a lesson every week. Yeah. And that was the beginning. So there always does seem to be a narrative in the trajectory of a composer's life where they sort of start on an instrument, but then something makes them figure out or realize that they may be meant to create and not just perfect the instrument. I'm kind of interested, I think a lot of people are interested increasingly about, I don't want to say the cruelty, <laughs> but the standards of perfection in a good music conservatory, and I thought I saw mention of, uh, if, uh, maybe cruelty is the word, but how hard it was to be to settle into the the career of a concert pianist, where the standards are so impossibly high. What is the moment when you decide that it's not going to be playing piano as a performer for the rest of your life, but creating music? And who made that happen for you? Well, I remember that. I think the Memphis was the first. I would love Horowitz's play, Horowitz's playing. And one, one, I heard one recording. It was so wonderful. I realized I will never play like this. And, and then after that, I kind of lost interest in, in, in that. Well, Mark, Mark, what was your experience learning the piano? I mean, it, is, there's almost sort of a roughing up quality to that pedagogy where you're meant to have a bad experience so that you become good. Is that how you see it, or am I being cynical? Well, I understand your cynicism. I honestly felt the piano, um, I know it's a cliche, but the piano picked me. I just could not uh, resist that sound. And the piano in my childhood not only challenged me, but kind of saved me in many ways. It was there. It was always something that I needed to work on. It was nourished by. And it gave me... Uh, protective shield to deal with being a young, uh, different person, you know. And, uh, but I, I just loved it. I couldn't get enough of it. Well, I wouldn't presume to think that you don't know how to compose, but you aren't known as a composer now. No. So wh what, is, what is the thing that made you sure that you weren't meant to be a composer, but rather a performer? 
I don't know the answer to that because maybe <laughs> I was, and mm -hmm. I was afraid of that or something. I remember when I was a uh, teenager or something, someone handed me a poem and asked me to set it to music, and I never did. But I felt like I wanted to, and there's maybe it's my own insecurity. But it's the process of composition, and that's why my relationship with David is so significant, is endlessly appealing and interesting, more so than the sort of what you were talking about, the conservatory. I mean, I've been through that, but that gets old after a while. You know, it's the process of, of composition that's so interesting and informs me, at least, as a performer. Well, for you, David, then, uh, I can't avoid Darius Miyod and his admonition that you actually should be a composer. So can you tell me about that encounter? That was a nice story. Um, I was, I went, I was, there's another avoidance issue. What do you call it? Aspen. Aspen. I'm, my talking is a little it's difficult to hear because I have Parkinson's. It cut me in half. I got saved my speech to some degree. But it's still kind of weird. Um, yes, I didn't want to spend all summer. I was staying with a piano teacher, a wonderful player, Leonard uh, Sure. He was just a fabulous player, but as but as bad a teacher in the sense of he would scream at me, and I had never had anyone scream at me. My my old teacher Bernard Abramovich, very German, very polite, very very loving. And this guy now, so I, he gave me Opus One Hundred One of Beethoven, which is relatively easy piece. I saw all summer. So it was miserable. He made music sound, music a torture. Music has always been my joy, my release from, if not football, at least some other thing. Uh, at least it released from my father's. We all had to, my, my, four, I had three brothers, sister, and we always had to carry wood. He would he would cut it, cords of wood. And for the winter, we'd, we'd, we'd do that. So I hated doing that naturally. I didn't want to cut off a finger. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I got to go out of that. I, I could play the piano. That was the ticket away from there. But so instead of playing, a, then it's sure I wrote a piece because I did, what did I do all, so long when I don't have something official to do? So I wrote a piano piece. My opus one, I guess. And I played for a friend of mine named Robert Helps. Not Robert Helps. <laughs> Robert Morgan, who became head of charity. The, what do you call that? Can't think of the word. Turned to the music department at uh, Yale. He said, "Play it for Darius Mio." I didn't know enough to be scared. <laughs> I knew the name, so I went and played it for him. And he, and he said, "My boy, you are a composer." It was such a thrilling, uh, what do you call it, a uh, release or encouragement. I did just that. I went back to my college. I was a junior, but when you're too young to uh, Seymour Schifrin who taught it that said I want to get into the, the graduate program so he heard my piece and he said okay you're, you can come on and that was it was a, such a strange this is a r random classroom of people graduate students everyone became famous in some odd way or another Lamont Young uh, was a word speaking of lesbians uh, who was a famous one who died just recently Pauline? Pauline Oliveros. Um, it, went, it went on. Everyone was, some, was somebody you've heard of. Mm -hmm. It was interesting. Well, you've also hobnobbed with some extremely familiar big names. And actually, Mark and I were talking about a week ago about Aaron Copeland. And uh, mm -hmm. it actually connects with um, last episode. I conversed with Howard Pollock, who's a biographer. But he really... I, I get this impression of Aaron Copeland as having been sort of a boss man of his era in terms of opening a lot of doors, um, officially announcing that a composer was great or that sort of thing. And it happened to you. So can you tell yeah. me about that? He was very good to me. It made, it made me a little cheery to him. I see. Um, well, how, how did you first meet? How did I meet him? Aaron, uh, where did I meet him? I'll ask you uh, just. A, I can't think I'll, about I'll even ask a, a more uh, just uh, an admiring question. Have you ever been to that house, that hallowed house? That oh now yeah, Because okay. nice. I, of course, this this whole thing is called Capricorn conversations, and yeah, I sort of gravitate to the idea that there are these crossroads of culture, 
And Capricorn, I don't know how it vies in comparison to the Copeland House, but it's right up there. Well, a I lot of people went through that house, didn't they? Really? The Copeland House? Yes. Not so much a bit as Capricorn, mm. because Aaron was quite private. Oh, okay. And I went up most weekends for a while, and he liked me to bring people up to meet, and it was fun. So we had a fun time. And that he never really taught me. I remember that he, I would play things for him, and he wouldn't say anything. But maybe then an hour later, we were having supper. He'd say, "Why do you have so many G sharps in the left hand?" <laughs> and I didn't. Listen, I thought he hadn't even heard, listened to it. It had taken in a lot. So, so we have a very generous spirit there, and not competitive, perhaps. He celebrated everybody. He, he did. He seemed to be the way he was in public, which was gracious and charming, and was the way I always saw him. I never thought I'd get mad really. He was really. Uh, you just said gracious, yeah. What a word. Was very gracious, not competitive. Well, and I really thought of a, 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 a relationship to Sam Barber. Yeah. It was. I met Sam one twice. Once Aaron took me to, to Capricorn, and we were having a great time. Uh, there were a lot of men there. I'm, I'm talking about Alan Aaron's boy here, I guess. Look, <laughs> look. Uh, so we all had, we had a nice time. And we played, one thing we played this game called uh, Dictionary, where, you, where you, the word is thrown out, whose, whose definition nobody knows. And your job is to write a definition, a written definition of the word that will be believed. And so he did, and it's so funny because Benani was there, and he his definitions were always so extreme you couldn't believe them. <laughs> but they were very loving, loving in another way. And I remember uh, Barbers were, were he had a kind of they were kind of hardcore like with a dictionary, strange dictionary. Who else was there? That's so funny because I always think of that person as having a sort of reserved and patrician personality but it sounds like if he were comfortable he could let loose huh? yeah, well and the one who won was Aaron Copeland it, his really did sound like the dictionary then he had managed to, to take in what the dictionary sounds like oh funny, <laughs> funny. I mean it actually uh, ironically it brings to mind when we talk about words and letters and that sort of thing in that brand new Bernstein documentary that we saw Mark at Tribeca uh, letters play a role there, and you see correspondence on screen, kind of very elegantly presented letters back and forth mm. between Aaron Copeland and Leonard Bernstein, where you see Aaron Copeland sort of winking at Bernstein, but at the same time, in that role, that in this overall role of being the grandfather of the composers, or at least in, of some influence, sort of cautioning Leonard Bernstein, be careful, don't reveal too much, the world's not ready for the truth about you know you and your life and that sort of thing. There's that game that I think was the di distinction between public life and private life. Yes, uh, and Aaron never seemed to breach that, yeah. that, and a lot of people didn't. It seemed so odd. Well, I mean, it wasn't that long ago, but it was amazingly impossible then to, to come out in any way. Yeah, and yeah. he never did. I'd love to talk about early works, and then we'll keep w mm. g winding, uh, you know, going back to fellow composers. But Mark, um, I just want to ask: Have you played Soliloquy, which is one of the early piano works? Yes, I have. How would you describe that piece compared to David's later works? Well, I had an interesting experience with that piece because I had played before that a lot of David's more recent uh, works. Uh, that's where I started. I started with kind of what he had written, because we met around 2005, six in there, and he was starting to write for the piano. So there were some things I never, I knew about those early pieces, but I, that piece, I had it, I saw it. So then when it came, you know, that day came where I said, well, now it's time to discover this piece. It was pretty amazing because it felt and sounded like David. So it was uh, a wonderful experience to then put my hands on that piece, my hands that had been through this other music, and uh, feeling uh, a real connection in terms of the way uh, it's written for the piano, the way that 
the, the voicing and all the, the texture, the virtuosity, the, lyr the lyricism that's just aching inside to come out that's so, uh, so appealing. And I've had the experience with other composers where I like to look at early works and some of them it's like another person. They were that person, especially in this generation, you know, very serial or whatever it is, you know, which is great, but does it have a connection to their later music? Sometimes it doesn't. It feels like they became someone else. So it sounds like even though the narrative on David's trajectory as a composer is that he started atonal in, in many ways, and yet sort of wound up responding to certain subjects with tonality, um, you're still, it's still irrefutably David in these early works like Soliloquy. I believe so. Well, there were different stages. Interesting, I was thinking about that. The piece you, you had played, we talked about. Um, when that was first played, it was considered very tonal. Because later on, when it was considered very atonal, the same piece, everything. So the times around it had changed, but the piece was the same rock, uh, which, which would make more sense. But I just followed my nose, as it were. Uh, I played, my, my piano teacher, Bernardo Bromovich, had played for this thing on Composers Forum. And, and he, when there was a piece he didn't want to play, or it was too hard, he didn't want to learn it, he gave it to me. So one of those pieces was a piece by Robert Helps. And, and the other, the other pieces. And I just, so when I came to write my piece after Darius Mio had, had appeared in my life, I just, I, I was, I, I was, uh, I had done these pieces. So this was in my ear, you might say. I just wrote what I, was in my ear, or what I had heard. And I think composers do that. I mean, composing is an art of imitation. You just, you have to do, you, you have to start somewhere. Sure. So you just, I mean, it's, it's true of Mozart, everybody. You start. That's that's good. You know, you're, maybe you, but you're still that's a, a timid you. Uh, I think, or some of these composers are like Mark said. Just their first music does not seem sound at all. Like, I mean, yeah. there's a certain humility combined with courage and and individuality to composers like yourself who simply. Um, you said you had your ear to it. Uh, it's there was another phrase I heard last week. Your ear to the ground, but ear to the ground is a little awkward. But it also suggests that you're going to be a lot influenced by culture, context. In your case, you really obsessed over a few things in your career. And we'll, of course, talk about one of the biggest ones that you're so well known for. But uh, one of the early ones was James Joyce. You really dove into James Joyce. So one thing I want to know is, what was it about that poetry and poetry altogether that, that affected not only what you chose to compose, but maybe even the notes on the page? Well, I went from man to man, composing. I followed them wherever they went. And the first one was Joyce. And uh, then after I, did, I sort of did Joyce, I did, wrote three pieces on him. On him. It got increasingly complex, actually. And then I switched to uh, my next boyfriend was... Oh, I guess this was the big one. I went from him to, to, to Lewis Carroll. But Lewis Carroll, I kind of started at a distance. And as I got into it, I got closer and closer. More and more the, the details of Carroll's life and they stumbled upon his love affair with Alice Pleasant Liddell, or implied love affair. I'm very interested in that. That whole, opened a whole other few chapters of the book. Mm -hmm. And I was just, I loved it so much that I couldn't, I was running out of stuff. <laughs> it, was, it was going away. I, was, I couldn't even end it. So I, I took him. Uh, I actually, I started to reset the, the footnotes <laughs> of the book and stuff like that. And uh, there's a wonderful book called uh, Martin Gardner, by Martin Gardner. An annotated Alice it is, and in that he gives all of the, the background for each each poem or a song it might be. So well, what what is this process of of trying to put great works, great authors into music? I can't resist wondering if you heard Barber's "I Hear an Army" and his the way that I guess he assumed presumed that it's a very uh, how do I say? <laughs> I was shocked how, how he said he was sort of military. Yeah. Oh my God. Go, I mean, go ahead. You know, <laughs> you didn't quite do the same, did you? No. But oh, so his, what? His, we, his, 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 I hear I was early too. I think. I believe so. Yeah. 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 Well, how do you do it? How, how, you know, what's what's the right what's the right way to deal with with works of uh, uh, text like that? You just have to surrender to whatever you're feeling mm. and go with not knowing why you're doing this. Mm -hmm. It really. 
It's interesting. You say you just simply had a relationship with it. You know, it's just, it was an infatuation, right? I don't know why, why I got, wouldn't get interested in Alice in Wonderland. It seem, I, I, but in my family, it seems to have flown through. I have, another, I have four, brother, four brothers. My second brother, Down, wrote, wrote his, his, his uh, um, what do you call it? His, 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 uh, he got, I mean, the word to go for me. He got a degree in the University of California. And his topic was the drawings of Alice in Wonderland. This was long before I was interested. Mm. So it was sort of in the air. And also when I was 10 years old, I played the White Rabbit. I see. I got two songs. So we have these ingredients. Everyone else got only one song. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was competitive then. <laughs> so we have these ingredients of your obsessions, but then there's the, this additional couple of ingredients that I actually have never tried tinkering with myself, but may, I'll give Mark a chance to maybe just in, in the most scientific <laughs> remind us what is a uh, palindrome? Mm, You've I'm played them, spot. haven't you? He can explain it better. Oh, he can. Okay. David, what is a palindrome? M-A-D-A-M is a palindrome. It goes forward to a point, in the middle it can be anything, and backwards. I got it. Okay. So we have palindromes, and then, and then we have acrostics. What is an acrostic? The acrostic song is, um, oh, the, the, first let, the first letter of every of the line spells out something read down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a completely visual thing. There's uh -huh. no musical. Well, it could be. There was. I, I mean, uh, so I've seen that as far back as Johann Sebastian Bach. Yes. I mean, but it doesn't show up much in music, doesn't it? It's sort of... It's conceptual it's, art, in a sense. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a sight thing. Very hard to do sight things in music. So you do that in Alice, among other places. Yeah, mostly in a piece, play, a piece called uh, uh, Adventures Underground. It's a lot of the backwards and forwards. And I just got interested in that. In the rhythm, I the rhythm of backwards and forwards interested me a lot. It was so complicated, yet it was simple. All these different little armies of notes would go... And I, I, I was very, I was very interested. I needed to find ways to, to keep going, to keep going. When I wrote, like I wanted to write long pieces. I didn't know that, but I was gearing up to be able to, by learning a way to go, to move, over, to move over long periods of time. Mm -hmm. and so I learned. So I had things that went backwards and forwards. In a sense, you don't have to invent, invent new music, but. You have to do stuff, the, the, the music that's there, the little things, the little kernels you had. Mm -hmm. So I did a lot of messing around with the same thing going backwards and forwards. I see. And it's then, interesting how you chose something that sort of is, that disciplines the composer, but doesn't boss around the composer. <laughs> it's just there, you know. Say that again, I like that. Composers need discipline, they need structure to move along, move forward, as you say. But it sort of doesn't boss you around with anything, you know. That's a good way to put it. Egotistical. It's just there. <laughs> yes, and Lewis Carroll had this weird combination of whimsical and exact. He had the mathematical mm -hmm. side of his brain and, and the other little girl side, so to speak. So that's a wonderful. I had similarly that way. I was good at some kinds of math. There's another thing that we don't see in this type of formal music these days hardly at all uh which i'm just kind of amazed at honestly uh we have we cannot get over the giggle factor or i'm just speaking for maybe the lowest common denominator speaking by inst in by musicians in a score and when composers dare to ask musicians to speak <laughs> during a score i've i first thing i want to know is uh have you do you have any stories of Problems. <laughs> People speaking. Yeah. In concert. Yeah. Yes, that's always a problem. Is there? They never want to do it, and then when well, they do it, they do it timidly. I mean, are, there's got to be some people who are game for that sort of stuff, and who are sort of eager to do it. Then they've they? all taken magazine classes. They're all this. Oh, okay. They know right. how to do it. A little bit none. They had a career change. They yeah. they were originally going to be actors, and they settled for being a musician. That would be the best. Uh, <laughs> but uh, you have to. I can't think what it was. Well, tell me. Let's let's get personal. I mean, Mark, are there any piano scores you've had to do where you had to also say or speak anything? There are some, and you have to kind of become sort of like an actor. You can't speak uh, the way you would. You kind of need a little bit of coaching, projecting. We're not used to. You know, we're so uh, 
I know what I'm playing, I get very interior, I'm in my, my zone, my world, that I want to share, but it's all through my muscles, you know, and all of a sudden it's, uh, you know, you're speaking. But I think it's good for musicians, because we are like actors, really. I mean, mm -hmm. David, do you have a certain frustration that this is something that <clears throat> continues to feel awkward in the concert hall? Well, I like, I like, like to, I love to do, make them awkward. <laughs> oh, the awkwardness I is good. I love players. I do these players. Uh, they do, like, when I did Final Alice, the Final Acrostic song, they, they, each player has to, to chant or say the acrostic. So they, yeah. they say that. But they, and then they're never loud enough. Yeah. And they're always doing louder, louder, louder. <laughs> and they, they think when you, then they're shouting, that they're, they're loud, but they're actually like piano from the <laughs> back and all. It's very hard to, to get that into their minds. I mean, the irony is that audiences kind of like it. I, I, yes. I, I, first time I ever heard it was when I, I lived in D.C. for a long time, still do. And Leonard Slacken, of course, great champion of your music, and so he led the National Symphony in one of these pieces. And, you know, it, I think of things like a cinematographer, right? I like to pan my camera around mm. to the back of the room or to the audience. And when I pan around and look, as soon as that starts happening, people, they lean in. You know, they, <laughs> they're interested. Oh, yeah. yeah. This is unusual. And it's not avant-garde. Not, there's nothing atonal about it. It's very tonal, <laughs> if you want to call it that. Just to talk. Just to talk. Yeah, you mean all at once? Different, different, different things. Uh, different things. It's just part of the score. Who did that first? I wonder. It sounds like Ives might have done it. I'll tell you, a, you know, a friend of mine and somebody I made a film with, John Deke. He's made, he's done a lot of that, and he even sort of talks about uh, a parallel to Singspiel when he basically has musicians speak. Passion of Scrooge is something we did, where they're just a character in a drama. And um, uh, that could lead, by the way, to Lucy Shelton, who's a, been somebody who sang a lot of his works and also is so averse in that style of combination of singing and speaking. Tell me about Lucy and working with her. About John Deke. Is he going to Harvard? How do I know? I, don't know, I know that name. Yeah, well. no, he, he was. He, he was in the New York Philharmonic for a long run playing bass. That's right. He, that's, he was the one who played. And he composed a bass concerto. And, yeah. Is he dead? No, he's with us, and he, oh, uh, good. he continues to compose. And He was someone. Um, he was like a light on the, the Philharmonic stage. He was like one light. A tall, a tall guy. A tall guy, and uh, but a great composer, too. Right. Who, who appreciated him at first? Who, who, well, like, actually, a group that I'm affiliated with, the 21st Century Consort, has had a long relationship with him. They're the New Music Ensemble in Washington, D.C. How old is he now? Uh, boy, I can't say exactly, but he's in, I think he would be in his 70s. I hope he doesn't hit me uh, if that's too old. <laughs> but no, he's he, he still has wild plans. Well, for say hello to for me. I will, yeah. I used yeah. to go up to him after concerts and say that was really great. Yeah. But you, found a, but you found a collaborator, as he did, in Lucy Shelton, who is so aver averse in this style of, of com combining speaking with singing and so on. Yes. She did that very naturally and very effectively. Can you name out some some hallmark works that she sang of yours? The, the Lucy sang, yeah, she sang the, uh, the a lot of the Joyce pieces. She sang mm -hmm. and, uh, Syzygy, Iron Army, and uh, so she got that middle period of my. Okay, well here here we are at the middle period, and so I, I mean it's funny. I saw one of your albums is called March to Tonality. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I guess Alice is pretty much the I don't know is it the starting point or the when that was really picking up speed. No, Martin and Alley with MTT. It was Michael Tilson Thomas commissioned it. Oh. I gave the initials. Yeah. MTT. Oh, interesting. March two thousand. It all fits into the sort of acrostic and acrostic yeah, uh, <laughs> acrostic in my blood now. Okay, got it, got it. Yeah. So uh, the Alice books, uh, I think what you focus on is that they were actually. This is something I didn't know, but when I, I saw an interview where you essentially said that if we assume that the Alice books are sort of pleasant children's books, that what might be deeper than that is that they were sort of satirical, even commenting on a sort of stale Victorian literature at the time, or in any case, dark. There's a there's a darkness to it also. So, what what is it, what were you what world were you trying to put us into with the Alice series of compositions? Good question. Uh, you always want to recreate your world in the music. Somebody, somebody had. Um, I wanted to. I never thought of this before. 
I wanted to make sense of the atonality of my one side of me and, and the music of the times and my own more weird side, which is fantasy-like and not tonal. So I had to find a text that had done that already. Oh, interesting. So in other words, you found in one place, this body of work, you found something that was reflecting or resonating with your own puzzlement as to where you were. <laughs> I yes. mean, when I think of Alice, I just think of like, what's happening now? What's happening now? What's happening now? <laughs> what's going to happen now? What is that? <laughs> it's, it's almost frightening. I, mean, I think as a kid, it's not the easiest literature. It's intriguing, but it's sort of scary. <laughs> yeah, it is. That's nice. No, that's what you're saying. Eternality is scary. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, so I guess it's, it, we did, it, it's interesting how it, there's no simplistic good or evil, maybe, in the Alice, where somebody's going to win, somebody's going to lose. Everybody loses. <laughs> <laughs> it all goes crashing. But there's no like one, you know, clear villain or anything. It's just sort of life is kind of mysterious and surprising constantly, isn't it? It's true. As you're putting it too, it's not. Uh, there's no winner. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, how how does that affect your structure? In other words, when you structure a piece, I don't know. Composers would tend to think that they have to have rising action, they have to have conflict, they have to have the denouement and climax. And you need all that too. You need all you that. You do. I think I feel you. So know. you buy that. I buy that. Yeah. You know, I'm definitely of the climax <laughs> generation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, but, but no, I, I wonder about that though. I want to jump to that question. I mean, I've been dying to ask this of any composer these days because it's almost, I suppose I can't, it's maybe cynical too. What do people want these days out of music? Yeah, I'd like to We know. just came out of like a year and a half of people making sure we all know what they want. You know, <laughs> like I've been stuck at home. This is what I like. You know, I like, I like murder dramas. I like whatever, right? What do people want out of music these days? It's different. I think it has changed what people want out of music. I don't quite know what it is. Well, tell me what you think. I think it's a good opportunity for somebody. <laughs> yeah? I do. Well, how do you, how do you fit in? I think it's, it's becoming simplified. People don't like. It's gotten so simple music, and one one thing interesting to me, uh, I two new friends of mine recorded a piece, and I heard it the other day. It, it was had, it was a finished recording, and there were like wrong notes in it. Thought, Why wouldn't they have edited those out? Why, it seems strange it left in. So I went and called the talked to the woman who edited the thing. She said, "Well, it was a what it was." It was a, not a normal recording, it was a, what's the thing? A live recording? What do you do when it's, like a Zoom? It's a Zoom. Oh, live streaming, live stream. yeah. So they said, we can't edit it very easily. Yeah, right. So it just, whenever it comes out, it's like it's like starting over again. Sure. There mistakes there and there. That's like, in a, like a public performance. Sure. So yeah. it's like, oh my God, so we're back there again. Yeah. And then that's been, been another 50 years of refining it in a different direction. I see. So. Well, I mean, you said simplified. People, I think there's a quality that ironically overlaps with your later identity, which we're now we're getting to, of, of, of a composer as, if you will, activist or somebody who is socially involved. Um, what's worrying, I suppose, I, I shouldn't insert myself here, but I mean, what's worrying is that the idea of liberating music to be accessible and diverse also can have the parallel effect of just the kind of thing you described. Just let it go. Don't worry about it. It's too complicated. We don't have to hit all the right notes. Or in any case, um, that world of so-called classical music, the barriers to entry are really high, aren't they? Yeah, now it looks high. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's interesting. What did you mean by that compared to when? Well, to when, when I was in school, yeah, I would say there was no other world. I mean, you couldn't perceive it even as that. Yeah. Uh, it was just because uh, I, I thought that that the barriers to entry were even higher in the old days. And now there's there's quite a few orchestras in the U.S. I mean, Slacken has told me about how you know we take for granted how few there were. You know, even maybe half a century ago. A few what? A few orchestras. Orchestras, chamber music ensembles. That's true. And That's true. There's an explosion. And something like Mahler also was was such a late appreciated so late. Mm. He really, when it was all over, he was writing his things as though he'd never heard a fortissimo before. Yeah. Um, I think we're getting in line and ready for something, I don't know what. 
Yeah. The music, the music is, is like classical music scares me. It seems to have lost its significance for so, for so many people. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess one of the things I that has put my mind here a lot is that I did find myself, just speaking from my experience, during the pandemic, I found myself weirdly not listening to music as much and maybe more like podcasts or discussions, things like that. And what do we even want from music? Like, what does it give us? Are we actually so advanced now with connections to every website possible in the world? All this stuff in our heads. I wonder if it's like we don't need to be dancing around campfires anymore. <laughs> Is music like outdated now? I'm being really provocative. Now you can here. buy a pill. It'd be like monosodium. Really? Is music going to get outdated? I'm being a little provocative. Well, what has happened in the past? Are things that aren't going out of style? Or, oh. or, uh, so you've been around a little longer. You've seen this sort of talk before. Not really. You don't, 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 don't talk about it. What you're saying is, uh, is provocative. Um, I'll, I'll make it personal. How much do you listen to music? I was just asked that question, and the answer was zero. Yeah. I don't listen to music. That's interesting. Yeah. I never, never. Tell me why. Well, I but, guess it could be the difference between your music or other people's music, right? I just don't listen to music. Yeah. I, I like the, the social aspect of it with friends but to sit alone and listen to a piece has to be a very special reason to sit mm-hmm. still that long yeah yeah but the con- the, the con- podcasting something that changes a little bit with me. it's an attempt to make music more autom- automatically available mm-hmm. and don't get fussy don't get stopped by the fussiness of a wrong note mm-hmm. and the tyranny of the wrong note has to go I think it's going yeah the wrong notes are now all right and what do you feel? How do you feel about that as a composer? Because you don't want people screwing up your music. I know. Right? I spent my life trying to make the notes sound right. <laughs> it's a, it's a shocking thing. I can't believe this would happen. Well, this this could lead into. I mean, a, a parallel question about do you listen to music? What do you want out of music? Is fundamentally something that I think a lot about. What led me to Bar- Samuel Barber, honestly, um, is is it an emotional language? Or to put another way, when you had this tonal shift, if you will. Were you also opening up to music as a tr- as a deeply emotional language compared to something more mathematical or academic? Definitely, I was trying to to escape from something, perhaps, and not, I didn't want to get tangled up in it. I wanted to save myself, <laughs> yeah. so I wrapped myself in a cocoon of tonality and moved forward. Mm-hmm. Is it trivial to say that music it expresses emotions, or is it beside the point? It does, I think. Yeah. Mark, any thoughts on this thing? And connecting with Samuel Barber, too. I mean, you have somebody who was unfashionable in his time, uh, in particular, and who stuck to his guns uh, at a time when audiences, I thought, were shortchanged in some sense, with that emotional connection. Yes, he he certainly did stick to his guns, and he had so much craft. You know, like his music is, you know, the piano sonata and the songs, everything is so beautifully crafted, and the uh, such original ideas. I call it the old-fashioned values of music, which never die. It can have can go through different languages or things, but you know when something uh, there's uh, the memorability factor. It gets in. I, for me personally, if it gets into my bones, then I know that it's real. And I think Barber, I think that's a good point. He stuck to his, his guns, and it's very authentic uh, music. And it's still being heard, and uh, it stands you know, the test of time. And uh, his lyrical gift was just you know, fantastic. And, I'm sure it wasn't always easy for him. Maybe he had his cocoon. I don't know enough about it, but it, it, I admire the fact that he stuck to that. That 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 was his voice, you know. Well, and same for David. <laughs> and uh, I just wanted to run through a couple of names and pieces uh, to hear your insights. Um, since Bernstein again is something fresh, since we just this new film, new attention to him. By the way, uh, the latest in the trades. 
uh, Bradley Cooper is going to play Leonard Bernstein in a film that's in development right now, and he will also direct the film. So, I mean, there's a guy who uh, has gotten his more than his fair share of attention over the years, but he gave you some attention because he recorded Tattoo. And you were composer in residence for a time it's at the New York Philharmonic. Yes. Yeah. Any any stories I, you want yes, to tell? Yes, I have one funny story. Please. I believe I can tell. There's several I can't tell. <laughs> well, maybe Nate I can. But, um, yes. Oh, he was going to do, going to do my piece tattoo with Philharmonic. The night before, he summoned me to his apartment. He said, "David, this is a wonderful piece. I love it. We're going to record it. It's going to be great." However, there's one spot where I want to make a small, small cut. I'm sure you won't mind, but it's my personal wish, I think. You know, David, he said, I, I made the, the, uh, the Copeland Third Symphony Light. I made it, the cuts I put in it. And also the, the, the two or three of these classic American rocks. And I said, no, I, I, I appreciate that you said that, but uh, I think I'll do it the way it is. I'd already heard the piece, wasn't there? He said, well, David, you know, I and he went on. This was like 8.30, we had dinner, a lovely little dinner separate trays, <laughs> and at three in the morning, I finally said, okay, tomorrow at the rehearsal, you can try it. Oh, great, it's wonderful. Blah, blah, blah. And I, was, I was gone. <laughs> and the next day, he, he played it, and I, I said, says the thing. I said, it's very nice, but I like it the way it is. Oh, wow. I don't want it. <laughs> I said, okay, wonderful. It never happened. It never happened again. He recorded it with, the, with his little cut in it. <laughs> oh, he did. He yeah. did it for the recording. It, did, it became like a... Like a, how do you call this thing? He weaponized something, <laughs> the new word. He weaponized that little cut. Either he had to have his will, which meant to cut. Wow. That's an interesting and revealing. I mean, you talk right. about somebody who uh, really had a, I don't know, <laughs> um, stamina, maybe is the word to put it. 3 a.m., right? And then, yeah, he had a lot of stamina. <laughs> yeah, interesting. Oh, gosh. Okay, here's another one. Leonard Slacken, uh, in, in Memory of a Summer Day. Maybe not the premiere, but certainly that's the recording that a lot of us have heard. And uh, certainly a champion of your work. Yeah. Uh, comments on working with Leonard Slacken. And then anything about that piece, too, In Memory of a Summer Day, which won you the Pulitzer. And he commissioned it. He, uh, there's a story where he, the manager of the Chicago Symphony, where they were doing Final Alice, called Leonard and said, I want you to come. Something very interesting is happening here. So he came and heard the piece. And came backstage afterwards. I didn't know what it was. He said, "I want one of those." <laughs> <laughs> so, and then he called me up you know, later then, or the office did, and, and I wrote "Memory of a Summer Day." This is sort of like a—it's a beautiful piece, and just like the Adagio for Strings is so beautiful, it's, it has an interesting history because with the Adagio for Strings, it was originally the second movement of the string quartet, right. and then it became this—you uh, know—other piece. piece. Yeah. It also became a choral piece, but then. Of course, the famous incarnation was this string arrangement. <laughs> Similarly with this piece, though, it started as what? What's the history of this piece? Because it's connected with the Alice, you know, compositions, at least I thought, in memory of a summer day. It shows up in Alice somewhere. Yeah, no, uh, one of my favorite pieces. Is it? I don't know why, but... And the, the, when you got the Pulitzer, it was a surprise, wasn't it? was in a sense because of what was normally being celebrated at the time. Yes, that was a big surprise. Yeah. Uh, the people, the people said to me, "You should have gotten it for Final Alice, which was the year before." Mm -hmm. But I was very happy to get it for. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, in your short, I'm sorry. In there's a Boozy and Hawks documentary about you and Leonard Slacken. Is since we're talking about Leonard Slacken, he's he's interviewed and and you know to put it in simple terms. He said that you basically had three phases as a composer. There's, uh, we've talked about two of them, I guess. But then your social activism, if you will, um, identity is your, emerged as your, your third. Um, although actually that was a few years ago and then I almost feel like maybe there's a fourth phase where you're really focusing <laughs> on piano, composing for piano, working with Mark, that sort of thing. But, but as to this third one, um, I'll, I'll use one entry point, maybe. What, are the, what were the circumstances when you composed Bully Side? What's the story behind that piece? Well, that, my, Mark had a lot to do with my activism, third side, which was to come out as a gay man musically, find mm -hmm. a musical equivalent of being gay in mm -hmm. notes. Mm -hmm. And his, Mark came, was so enthusiastic about my music, it gave me kind of a shot in the arm. And... Uh, I wanted to, to 
to celebrate that or hang on to that. Because it was so hard to go from Alice in Wonderland to, to um, something about jerking off. Mm, yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. What, was Bully Side around the beginning of that? Or bully is Side that was, no, it was, it was in, in, in deep in it, inside it. I see, okay. That was not so... Well, let's, if I may, I mean, I'd love to talk about and hear your thoughts on the absence of both eroticism in general, sensuality in general in music, and then the specific thing you chose to write about. What prevented there from even being a critical mass in this art form <laughs> of music that even bothered dealing with it? I, I can't help but think about The Lovers, which was a late Samuel Barber piece that yeah, there's a moment when <laughs> there's a moment when somebody sings "Strip off your clothes" and then all of a sudden everybody's eyebrows go up, you know, and it's like, oh, you can't do that. But yeah. it's, it's so great that moment every composers live for. Yeah, <laughs> you can't do that. <laughs> so there was it. hardly anything. Actually, actually, what as a if, if you wear a musicology hat, was there anything up to you? Oh, up to me, what? Literally, was there any composer grappling with oh. the stuff? No one was interested in that. They didn't think of it as a. I found the rock, <laughs> whatever it was. Yeah. It turned out to be a bit of a pearl. But no, I just, it just was my next, the next thing I wanted to do. It was a huge part of my life at that time, yeah. being, coming out as gay and making it meaningful. And it was part of my life. I just wanted to give it a musical equivalent. And I didn't know if you could. I, because it, it also was a, as a free pass area. No one had done it totally. Mm -hmm. No one had really written anything incontrovertibly gay mm -hmm. or sexual. It just hadn't happened. There were always he, she pronoun mix-ups. That we're not good enough for me. <laughs> that comes later, I think. Well, I think certainly there were more. The gatekeepers were must have been a big factor. For example, programmers simply are going to program works based on whether they like them or not, right? And tastemakers uh, must have been one of the barriers historically. Well, I had I had pieces taken off the program until, unless they remove certain words. Like, really. Uh, Certain words that, words that now are not even what? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it, it was so it, it was very controversial. I see. I think this concert was in a church. Got, sure. Was the word? I don't know what the word was. So yeah, I, what did you? How did you resolve some of these early things? Were you somewhat pragmatic? So, fine, as long as it's an incremental step. Yeah. You you let some of those things happen, didn't you? No, I didn't. necessarily incremental. I mean, I started with some of them were very. In your face. I see, yeah. And well, take it or leave it, right? They, they commissioned it. And, uh, well, you know, everyone it's, received, wanted to be uh, liberal. <laughs> I want to be liberal about it. I see. But they, even some of them were, were shocked. Well, I, I think that and goes... the publisher wouldn't, 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 let, wouldn't, uh, right. wouldn't let me publish the, the, the piece, uh, my favorite penis poems. <laughs> you can't. You cannot use the word penis in, in music. I see, I see the poster on the wall there. Yeah, yeah. Well, that actually, a lot of composers continue to be interested in the practice of commissions and where the where that's headed. Uh, whether that's sort of continues to be their lifeblood. In the case of commissions, though, is it true on the other hand that commissions are sort of a fun trick because it's a upfront commitment, isn't it? So whatever you deliver from a, in response to a commission, they got to take it or leave it, right? Exactly. <laughs> That's a nice trap. <laughs> so did that happen a few times where yes, they didn't I took quite a, I took advantage of that? You did. Yeah. Would you say that they didn't know what they were getting into? How could they? <laughs> they <laughs> That's great. They thought it was an Alice composer. They wanted the lovely Alice piece. They got something about soldiers walking over other men and. I mean, Mud fields. but something that has really interested me is that there was a, a situation, particularly in Barber's time, all these composers at Capricorn, what they often had in common was that there were these sort of matrons of the arts who commissioned them, subsidized them, but kind of kept their secrets secret. And they were progressive and they protected them from the world in a sense. But it was only the, kind of the only way that things could get done back then. Um, you, 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 you actually weren't in, in the exact same situation. You, you just went ahead and did it anyway. I was close. I was next. I was the next step. Yeah, you I were, think, weren't uh, you? Yeah. That's interesting. No one actually wrote in, in a couple of times. No one wrote explicitly. 
Yeah. Erotic sex. It's yeah. sex. Or gay sex. Right. The sex does not doing exist. It's just eroticism in general. Yeah. Well, no, eroticism, that's, that's really a softer word. There's a lot of eroticism, whatever. The, okay. There's a lot of sex. No. It's a shorter word. You it, need more it, syllables. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think. <laughs> well, uh, I also, uh, oh, another question I couldn't resist asking is, uh, what does the response to your music of this nature say about America? Because you're, you're a, quote, American composer, you know, and that has a certain cachet to it. I mean, Aaron Copeland was a, quote, American composer. But uh, uh, do other countries, have they embraced your music more than uh, American audiences? Uh, no, I don't think so. Really? Interesting. No, Are they more stuffy about uh, sex in music? I think they are. Really? That's interesting. Because yeah. I thought they would like to sneer at us and say that we're very uptight here. I haven't had that many performances overseas. Overseas. So yeah. I don't really know. Interesting. Um, I mean, I've heard American composers complain of the idea that a lot of Europeans either need us to be making jazz or extreme avant-garde, and there's sort of little room for anything else. That's interesting. Okay. I, I believe that's probably true. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of a caricature of Americans. But I never took in jazz. I didn't go towards jazz because it was such a big thing. Yeah. And, uh, Mark, how would you introduce... To, if, if, we, if we talk about this, so to speak, fourth phase, where now you've really spent a lot of your energy and, and, and creative output on piano, adding to the piano literature, how would you introduce Gotham Glory, Mark? Hmm. Uh, Gotham Glory, uh, was, it's a big four-movement piece that was written before I started working with David, so it, it already existed, and I guess that was the first big piano piece um, and uh, there are we, we talked about the earlier piece there's a piece called Virtuoso Alice on the acrostic song that you know, discussed but th that was uh, one of the first big pieces and since that piece there have been other multi-movement uh, works so I would put put it in that category and and also a deeply personal uh, piece it's a you know there's a the west morning in the west village has to do with this neighborhood and the tragedy of the twin towers and um yeah that beautiful museum piece fugue very big fugue that's one of the great fugues yeah you i mean you gave me the cd last week and i've really been enjoying i'm a new new yorker and so the idea of how how do you depict this complicated city in music has taken many forms I mean, but I wasn't getting like the Bernstein to Daniel Poor vibe here of the sort of dynamic, industrious city. It was a, a, a lot more delicate and a lot more perceptive. You said it's or it, it's a personal you know, piece. So the mm -hmm. movements include something on the West Village. Um, and again, the West Village isn't downtown. It's not Midtown. It's not uh, the Upper East Side. It's Upper West Side. It's distinctly the West Village. And here we are sitting in the West Village. What is this a love letter to, that first movement? What does the West Village mean to you? You've been here a while. Yeah, they have 45 years in the same spot, as it were. What it's become, it was, it was a, a kind of a wicked place when I came here. And now it's a very nice place. And I remember when we saw our first baby carriage, no one knew what it was. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, importantly, I mean, to connect back to the third, you know, phase of, if you will, I mean, these are all existing and simultaneously, but man, I rode my bike here, for, and I w rode past Stonewall, and uh, uh, I mean, that, that also is, uh, must have been being sort of depicted in the music as well. The, 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 there's a melancholy quality, I guess, to mm. that movement that seems to be almost like a dirge for the things that you've seen in the West Village, maybe. Well, the whole the experience of being gay is so caught into, into pain. Because of the uh, AIDS crisis, perhaps. Well, AIDS made it, but everyone was hating, hating gays anyway, in a sense. So when AIDS came, they externalized that there's something wrong with being gay, if it can mm -hmm. be interpreted that way. Sure. So that was very hard to triumph over the movement about the museum just 
also struck me because it, it really feels, feel, felt like the soundtrack to the right way to experience a museum. It, it just, because <laughs> it, it wasn't again this sort of fa fanfare at all. Because yeah. that's not what I feel when I walk through a museum. And then 9-11, anything you want to say about that movement and your approach to it? Because there, it, what a challenge. I mean, I, Steve Reich has taken it on. John Adams has taken it on. What was your, uh, uh, Corigliano has taken it on. What was your approach to grappling with that incident? I don't know why it came to me just to do something very soft. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, is, there, is there a marking P-N-E-C-C-C-C-C-C-M-O? <laughs> that is, I gotta be the quietest playing I've ever heard. How do you do that, Mark? There's a pedal involved, I'm sure. Or was there not? Hopefully there is, because I, <laughs> I love the pedals. Uh, probably, it's, uh, David does like extreme dynamics. Mm. There's, uh, and it's, uh, but it has to be written in a way, in that movement there's some inside the piano. You strum the Yeah, there's the strings, some yeah. like that. So it, it uh, now that we talk about it, it is very quiet, very intimate for such a, a dramatic uh, event. Mm -hmm. And just one thing about that first movement, the West Village movement, I remember when we were recording it, for some reason that day my tempo sped up, which was unusual, because I'm usually pretty much, you, you get kind of in your, you're locked in your tempo. You live in that tempo by the time you're recording. And I remember stopping and David was like, it's just, it's fast. And I listened to it and uh, reminds me of what you said, that it's kind of a, a different take on the West Village, a kind of more personal, um, melancholy perhaps. Yeah, yeah, and I think that psychology to the music is very appealing, draws you in. It can't just be, it's, it's not superficial, mm -hmm. you know. By the way, I can't resist saying that the last movement is pretty long in comparison to the rest. And it's almost tire, tiring. Uh, it must have been tiring to play. Woman rank. And it really goes in circles, you know. It, is it a fugue? It's a, uh, no, okay, canon. It was in circles the way of skater goes in circles. <laughs> right, well, also, I mean, I, I, I'm just going to uh, confess to you, I, I was being very visual with this suite of piano pieces. I'm thinking of Trump, <laughs> sort yeah. of like, like as his prison sentence, like being forced to <laughs> ice skate Go on. for the complete <laughs> length of the piece. And I'm seeing Mark with a grand piano in the middle of the rink, uh, you know, playing. Uh, very straight, by the way, like very seriously. And I see Trump constantly falling down and getting back up again. I don't know. I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. But sim similar comedy is like, oh, my God, you're, you're hoisted by a crane uh, with the Manhattan skyline on the album cover. Uh, whose idea was this? Because literally there's a whole grand piano being held by a crane, and then you're right there. I don't know, you're just kind of like hanging on. I think you're sitting on the piano, aren't you, or something? You're leaning on it. Whose idea was this? It was the, uh, he's a good friend of mine, the guy who drew it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. And can you confirm for the record that you were not hanging from a crane? <laughs> we won't say. All right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Well, I'm kind of wrapping up with a sort of like a free a free round, but I certainly wanted to ask any stories or anecdotes you might have about Samuel Barber. You've already mentioned the thing about the games at the house at Capricorn, but you know, what, what would you if if you could say what was it like to meet him and what was your impression of 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 him? And then I also love to run through any pieces of Samuel Barber that you have any comments on or that you like. I always admired Sam Barber. I didn't know him because I knew Copeland very well. They lived near each other on the same plateau. Capricorn went into Aaron's house, but we never went there for some reason. Until one, one time we did for this dictionary game, and that was a lot of fun. But uh, his music I had great respect for because I didn't think anyone else had, had a big technique like he did in American music. Just a terrific ability to put feelings and to make expressive devices in music, a cannon or a thing like that, or a fugue, he made it a very personal and made it romantic in a way that was fresh and surprising. Mm -hmm. Then I met him towards the end of the life, it's not such a nice story. Um, I didn't had lunch with him, someone else there introduced us, I had just had 
this big success with final elements. You know, it's very hard for another composer to, to, to endure the success of another, especially that distance of one foot away as the table is. But we had lunch, lunch and he said, he just spoke about final elements, congratulating me on it. But it was a lot of pain came out of his, out of his work mouth and eyes and I could see that it's hard to to do that. I didn't know that I didn't know his personal story so much, mm. but I, now I know. Now, now my, I being way beyond his age until I, I understand now all of the, the regret of leaving a lot of things behind. Mm, mm -hmm. So he was at that late stage of his life. I mean, we know that he had alcohol problems, mm -hmm. but he also eventually, you know, fell to melanoma. So yeah. it was truly just a health thing. But there was also the idea that his music was increasingly um, right. not fashionable, yeah. if you will. Yeah. Um, but he kept writing great music right up until the end. Um, but he also lost Minotti, and I think that was a yeah. really big loss. that was a big loss. And it kind of makes anyone wonder how that can work, two composers, right? Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> Unique. Have you dared try? <laughs> yes, I have. Yeah, yeah. I mean, no, it, it, it can go all way. It can go in all directions, I suppose. But yeah, I, I always, I, I, what, a, what an interesting kind of showdown to have two people try and separate the, the those uh, those things. Capricorn was famous for having two wings. They chose it because it was just far as far away yeah. as possible. A very long house. Very sensible. <laughs> <laughs> it must have been fun to live with another composer like that. I guess so. Maybe at first. <laughs> Two successful composers. Yeah. I don't think they were really, the type who were jealous of the other because one didn't wrote this word a little better for Cleopatra. Didn't Minotti write that for her? Uh, no, actually, in fact, felt a little bit spurned, if one oh, he didn't. presumes, but uh, it was Zeffirelli who ended up becoming somewhat of a problem in that troubled production because he had his sights on something more Aida-like instead of the more intimate chamber Shakespearean drama that the, the material required. But he wrote Vanessa. He wrote the libretto to Vanessa, right. for and, sure. And more modern, it would be John Corleano and uh, Mark. Sure, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's, that's you're right. They're very similar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Indeed, yeah. Same type of uh, influences. I think they were lucky. Yeah, yeah. Minotti had a different style, didn't he? Did you ever meet Minotti? Yes, I met him. He was very big very personality. Chaotic, very chaotic. So. Oh, really? What I do you mean by I, what do you mean by chaotic? I met him when he was. I was doing. I was composing resident at the New York Philharmonic. Oh. He had wrote a piece that was, it was sort of like not playable. Was it? Strangely, it's all irrational, and so we didn't know what to do. We wanted to do the piece, so we went to. He said, "Don't give it to someone to convert." And so he did the, the people who convert pieces <laughs> into playable things from sketches and whatever this was, and so we played it. But I didn't get a sense of him as a. I don't know. He was as a together person. This was also late in his life. Oh yeah, yeah. Well. He, if, if I mean, in, in, in the vaguest terms, you could say he was sort of a showman, and Barber was sort of more pure music, even though Barber has his two operas. But yeah. Barber was literary, Minotti was a, a showman, and, and more Broadway. In fact, these were the days when operas even were being shown on Broadway. I know it's amazing that that could be, that all those, all those operas, we call them, see them, were done on Broadway. How could that be? It's yeah. a one, that, that's a, perhaps a, the top of the, of the mark where, where music was more important than a lot of things. Sure, sure. And yeah, I, in fact, <laughs> you remember Fran Leibovitz introduced, uh, walked up to introduce the screening of the new Bert Bernstein documentary last week, and it was just such a howling laugh, the hardest I've laughed in months, because she testified to the fact that growing up, she used to watch on television Bernstein's Young People's Concerts. And she was blown away, sort of in awe. So this is probably what a great conductor is. It fit every archetype. And she says, but the, it doesn't happen anymore. So she says, these aren't, these aren't paid kids. She found out later that these were not actors. They actually loved this music. They were kind of raptly attending these Young People's <laughs> Concerts. She said, that doesn't exist anymore. How did we lose that? And she was also saying, you know, parents, 
if you have kids, you know, make them watch this. And if they refuse, get rid of them. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you share that sort of sense of loss that, that, that young people aren't raptly coming to concerts? Yes, I do. You just said you know, things were on Broadway, right? That's the yeah. place. So it, it, it's weird. I wonder who's responsible for this problem because uh, maybe there should be more of this type of things on these mainstream venues like Broadway. Did, did, you ever, did you ever test those boundaries yourself, try to bring things out of the concert hall into other venues? That, that yeah, I, would, I remember movies. I never did them all, but I offered a couple of movies to do. I see. I was afraid. Yeah? I was afraid yeah. where it would take me. Your music, what we know is that your music will continue to be played. And uh, Mark, any comments to sort of as we wrap up about um, your, I mean, I hate to say it this way, but you are the next generation in a certain sense. You've taken a cer certain sense of responsibility for promoting and sharing David's music by playing it, studying it, and so on, recording it. So what is the future for David's music? Well, it's like we were, we've been talking about Samuel Barber. It's the same thing. If it, as David was talking about, that uh, Barber's incredible gifts with like fugue and form and all that, that's not just in a th music theory class. That is architecture that, uh, uh, that lives on. And the only reason that I've been uh, committed and perhaps an advocate, whatever labels, whatever, it's it's just gotten in my bones. It's made a difference to me, you know. I do like the idea of of being part of this next generation and letting people know about this great music. I'm I'm very interested in, for instance, young uh, students who are studying music. When it comes to modern music it's always some of the experimental composers who I like very much, like Henry Cowell and some of those, and there are obviously more. But what about the composers who are writing pieces that, have, that are lyric and that are f formal and, and romantic? I think that's a whole wonderful subject and everyone can live together. It doesn't have to be pick one or the other or mix them up, combine, you know, combine them up. But anyway, my, uh, my advocacy, my commitment has been through the music. I mean, I love David. He's my dear friend. But the music itself uh, uh, speaks for itself, you know. And it does seem, David, you're so blessed to have a publisher who's published all of your music. Yeah. And uh, it just sounds like a great uh, relationship and, and your place in history is... is <laughs> Permanent, permanent and irrefutable. That's so strange. <laughs> it's, it's there. It's, it's there. And I love your music so much. Thank you very much. It was such a pleasure talking to it you. It is a pleasure for me, too. Right. And to meet you.